So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. From the day Joseph entered you, this episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. ...diversity, he wanted to be a lawyer. And he wanted to work at a top-tier firm in downtown Toronto. And in 1993, after finishing law school at Osgoode Hall, that's exactly where he found himself. In the lobby of a prestigious firm waiting for his first day. But right then and there, just as his dreams were coming true, Joseph would have an encounter that would send him on a decade-and-a-half-long crime spree. I was over there, maybe 20 other students, waiting for the tour of our first day of work. And we saw a summer student, because the firm also hires students in the summer. He immediately noticed something strange about the man's appearance. His shoes. And I saw this student, and he was walking around with white leather driving shoes. And I was a fan of Formula One racing, so I knew what a driving shoe looked like. And it looks very bizarre to see a shoe like that in a law firm. The summer student came over and started talking to the group. So he came over to talk to one of the students that was beside me. And I said, you know, why are you wearing these white leather shoes, driving shoes? And he says, well, I'm having a car delivered downstairs with money I made from a deal I was working on. Joseph was immediately taken aback. Summer students were way too far down the ladder to get bonuses for working on deals. Instead, he seemed to be saying something else. Now, I took that to mean that he had made money inside trading on information that he was working on. This summer student had just casually confessed to total strangers that he had committed a crime. Insider trading. That night, I called my best friend who was articling at another downtown firm, and I told the story to him. And neither of us, you know, from our testimony to the regulars, neither of us remembers who said, hey, let's do it too. But clearly one of us said, hey, let's do it too. And we started down the path just from seeing that event. 
My name is Joseph Gromosik. I'm a former lawyer in Ontario, and I am the first and I believe still only Canadian to receive a federal sentence of imprisonment for insider trading. I engaged in the activity on both sides of the Canada-US border and it resulted at the end of the day receiving a three-year, three-month sentence in both countries. From Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. To Martha Stewart. One case that's inspired a lot of questions about CEOs, Wall Street, and corporate responsibility is the ongoing investigation of Martha Stewart and allegations of insider trading. Insider traders have become some of the most famous corporate criminals around. But in Canada, only a single person has ever gone to prison for that crime. Joseph Gromovsik. Over a time span of 15 years, Gromovsik and his best friend, Gil Kornblum, an ultra-successful corporate lawyer, orchestrated a massive scheme to personally enrich themselves. They stole information, made illegal trades, and laundered the money. And in the end, they made over $10 million, making it the biggest insider trading scandal ever uncovered in Canada. But when they were caught, the consequences would be devastating. It cost one man his freedom and the other his life. So how do a pair of people go from being bright young law students to some of the most prodigious white-collar criminals in Canadian history? And why is it that at the same time the United States is putting hundreds and hundreds of insider traders behind bars, Canada's only ever prosecuted one? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Joseph Gromovsik and Gil Kornblum immediately saw something in each other. I met him on the first day of school, and then we we hit it off right away. We both had sort of a dry sense of humor, uh, very cynical for some reason, and we became probably best friends within the first week of law school, and it continued on, where I probably talked to him every single day, including my honeymoon, for about 20 years. Gil found Joseph to be kind of interesting and loud and brash, a contrast to his own mild-mannered personality. After Joseph's encounter with a summer student wearing the white driving shoes, Joseph and Gil took their first steps into criminal activity. At his law firm, Gil had seen a memo about an upcoming transaction between two forestry companies. He told Joseph about it, and Joseph made the trades. I made a conscious decision, which I told my co-accused. I would never take information at a firm that I worked at. Because I, I, you know, it was a line I wouldn't cross. I'm not saying my morality was better than his, but I just said, I'm not going to do that. So instead, it was Gil who would find out information through his law firm about upcoming deals and then give them to Joseph. Joseph would do the trades and then they'd split the winnings. So all the deals were on, on his side or things we saw found out in public, just overhearing conversations. And uh, the first deal, we made $181. It wasn't a lot of money but it didn't take them long to get the hang of it. Now, sometimes a deal wouldn't happen because, of course, he was just a, an articling student. He wasn't controlling the deal. He didn't know. He had to find things indirectly. Or, or, and when it did happen, uh, I would watch the, the announcement in the morning, and then I would probably sell the stock that morning and, and take our profits and then move on to the next. And to avoid getting caught, I think in the beginning, we, we change accounts a lot. So I might, I might do one deal in an account, close that account, open another account, do the same thing over and over again. You know, through my career of trading, I probably had well over 100 different uh, brokerage accounts all over the world. Once they had some winnings, they started to escalate the trades. Fast. The philosophy we had was like, go big or go home. So we're trying to make as much money as possible so we could get out 
and, and stop. So we were very aggressive in our trading. As their crimes grew bigger and bigger, the two friends were brought closer together. I think it made us closer because, you know, you're sort of a shared secret and we, we'd proven we can trust each other. So we, every time we had a deal, we said to keep us humble, we would go to Taco Bell to celebrate by eating five tacos each. That was our thing, which is sort of insane, you think, because we, we could eat anywhere we want. And that, that was part of who we were. We weren't making a show of it. That was just who we were, just for me, at least. It wasn't for the money. It was for, for the rush. Things really took a turn when Gil had gotten a job at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York City. Sullivan Cromwell is one of the world's most well-known and prestigious corporate law firms. Gill had gotten the job through less than honest means. So he took his transcript from school and he cut out the letter A in photocopy and stuck a lot of straight A's. At that time, for whatever reason, they didn't check. But once he was at Sullivan and Cromwell, Gill had access to a treasure trove of information like never before. The deal flow was so much greater because, you know, this is a firm, maybe a thousand people at that time doing you know, takeovers all over the place. To get information, he didn't just use information on deals he worked on as a first year lawyer and then a second year lawyer. He would do something we called spelunking. So at nighttime, we had realized that um, you couldn't work late enough in New York to be the last guy in the office because everyone's working really, really hard there. We had realized you can be the first person in in the morning. So we had researched it, we'd studied it, and we said about 3.45 in the morning, that's when the firm, you know, a thousand people, is emptiest. So what we did was, I'm in Toronto, and my job was to call him in New York and wake him up about, you know, before 3 o'clock. Because he had said that if I have to wake up, which is him, I would have to wake up in Toronto. So my job was to be an alarm clock. So I have to, like, wake him up, and then, like, hey, are you awake? Like, basically yell at him, get, get go to work. And he would wake up, and he would go to the firm, and he'd go from office to office, desk to desk, garbage can to garbage can, for about half an hour when the firm is emptiest, and look through the desk and look for deal information. So that's why we had so many deals over this period of time. It's, it's like we're, we're finding things in someone else's, you know, random office somewhere, or a garbage can. And he would always carry a book with him when he's going office to office because he said if someone confronted me at, say, 4 in the morning, what are you doing here? He would, he would hold up the book and say, I was just looking for this book. They had other strategies, too. These big firms have nighttime staff that would come in. And we had discovered that the firm leaves a generic password for a nighttime staff. So everyone around the world would have a password. So we said, well, why don't we use this generic password so they can't figure out who's using it within the firm. So he would find the generic password and just go through the computer system and check. He'd know the lawyers who are in M&A, mergers and acquisitions, and we check their files over and over again. So that, that lawyer would check their files and they'd say, well, generic nighttime password person looked at it. doesn't say where. They couldn't pinpoint it. So we thought that was a great way to get information. Soon, they were making a million dollars off of individual trades. At a certain point in time, we had so much money that we wanted to separate ourselves from the trades even more. So we set up trading accounts in non-residents. So Bahamas, Cayman Islands, Switzerland, you know, these type of places. The accounts were registered under names like, I need money, and through God, all things are possible. And then now you have money in an account, let's say a foreign country, let's say Bahamas. How do you get it so you can use it here? The answer? Las Vegas. They'd wire the money from their offshore accounts to casinos in Vegas. So my job was to get the money out of the casino. So now you've wired, let's say, $100,000 into the cage. How do you get it out? So I would gamble at the blackjack table. So I would learn how to be successful at that so the cost of that wasn't high. I learned how to count cards. And then you play a little bit and then you take your chips and you'd either hand the chips to my co-accused so he can cash it if he wants some of the money. Or I'd go to the cage and get cash and then bring the cash back. And this was before 9-11 where you could bring cash into Canada. After 9-11, they needed a new strategy. So instead of casinos, they'd bet on both sides of the same sports game. 
So then you take this ticket back to Canada and you'd mail it to Vegas with your passport and they mail you a check back that would say sports books winnings on it because in Canada, gambling winnings are not, not taxable under the windfall tax, tax rule. So I would just send the tickets, get a check back, put the check in the bank. They were making enormous amounts of money, but the lives of the two friends began to diverge. Joseph was no longer working as a lawyer. Instead, he used the money from insider trading to live a carefree life. I'm just a guy living in a condo in Toronto, phoning someone in New York and then trading and then just living a sort of a, a bon vivant lifestyle. I had a lot of money, a lot of time. So I'm, you know, I'm going to film school in New York. I'm going to Paris for photography and, you know, just having a, a good life. But for Gil, the burden of committing these crimes was weighing down on him. He would scratch his knuckles. So he had these bloody knuckles on both hands as if he was like a street fighter, like, you know, doing a fight club thing. Gil's colleagues didn't notice. They described him as pleasant and always smiling. But the truth was that Gil was despondent. He contemplated suicide every day. He felt worthless and like a fraud. But his crimes with Joseph provided him with what he called a window out of helplessness and depression. And Gil had other motivations too. Initially, the idea had been to make enough money in a few big scores and then just call it quits. But even as Gill's career took off, he continued to insider trade, even when he was making a million dollars a year legally. So why would he risk everything, his freedom, his job, his reputation, for money that he didn't even need? Joseph says that he only asked Gill that question one time. And I asked him, like, why are you doing it? And he says, I'd like to have this in the, my back pocket, which meant that he's surrounded by people who went to Harvard and other, you know, prestigious schools. And he felt that they were looking down on him. For him, it was psychological. He'd say, well, you guys are so smart. Uh, you don't know that I have this in my back pocket. You haven't discovered that I'm insider trading. As for Joseph, the money certainly made his life easier. But he says that's not why he was doing it. I could say to you, it wasn't about money and no one believes it. But honestly, it wasn't about money. For me, at a certain point in time, it became the rush. It was like a gamble. Despite the stress, Joseph says he wasn't very worried about getting caught. And he had a plan if someone ever became suspicious. Now, clearly, we had to t have taken precautions, and we did. There was a list of things we did after a while that we called tradecraft, which was precautions we took to not to be identified. And then if identified, to have an explanation. So, for example, at one time when we were trading, you know, making millions of dollars on trades, before I would buy a stock, I would find a legitimate reason why am I buying this stock. So I would research. I would look for postings on message boards if someone else had referenced a, a takeover. There were two or three occasions when he got calls from brokerages asking for an interview to find out why he was buying a certain stock. Whatever explanation I gave was legitimate enough that nothing ever came of it. So I, I sounded plausible enough that they'd say, well, this is a good reason why he bought stock X that was taken over, let's say, a week later. But it was all going to come crashing down. After years of illegal insider trading, Joseph and Gil had decided to call it quits. Both of them got married, and they'd split the money, buying themselves big, expensive houses. Gil moved back to Canada, got a job at a big American law firm's Toronto office, and stopped stealing information from his clients. But the secret they shared continued to fester under the surface. Gil claimed that Joseph would occasionally bother him for more insider information. Meanwhile, Gil's life would take a turn for the worse. He was passed over for a partnership at his firm, his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and he lost $2.7 million when the dot-com bubble burst in 2001. One day, Gil came back to Joseph, wanting to start insider trading once again. 
Rather than saying, hey, I'll just give you X millions of dollars, go away, I don't want to do it again. I have my life. I have, you know, just got married, I have two children at this point. I, I said, okay, well, we'll do it again just a little bit till you make back your money and then we're done. And that's how the second time I became resentful. So I didn't take the same precautions because I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it just to make him go away almost. And that's what led our eventual downfall. Reunited in Toronto, the two of them developed some new strategies. Let's say a firm wanted to hire his firm because he's, he's an American firm in Toronto. They want to hire them to work on a deal. So they would call him and they, you'd have to check if you have a conflict to work on this deal. And if he gleaned enough information for that phone call, he would just tell the person, oh, I have a conflict. I can't represent you. He wouldn't even look. So that that person would move on and we had all the information we wanted and we'd trade on it. So that if the deal was ever announced and people were suspicious, it never pointed back to his firm because his firm didn't do anything. It didn't, was not involved in that deal whatsoever. Gil would sometimes turn away major business for his firm. I remember one deal was a very big deal. It would have given the firm maybe a million dollars of bills, and he turned it away because it, we, it was more valuable for us personally than for his firm. Other times, they would go to a Starbucks near Bay Street and eavesdrop on lawyers and bankers talking shop. If they could piece together a deal that these folks were working on, Joseph would research it and trade on it. But the friendship between the two of them began to splinter. Both of them got sloppy. Gil was leaving evidence of his actions on his work computers. And Joseph began to make trades for family members and lie to Gil about what he was doing. I'm not saying they never would have caught me because in theory they, they would have. But near the end, I know I was so resentful about the whole process that whatever precautions I took in the beginning, which were, you know, changing accounts, using intermediaries, doing small trades, avoiding direct purchases, all these things I wasn't doing at the end because I didn't care. It was a single trade that finally did them in. So in this case, I buy for the family member and then I call the broker and I, I was going to buy it's 100,000 shares of something relatively thin. So I would normally say to the broker, feed this in slowly, you know, over the next week. But Joseph's normal broker wasn't in that day. He trusted the broker's assistant, but they weren't in that day either. So now I get the third level assistant. And again, if I was careful, I would say, well, I'll call back later to do the trade, but I didn't. So he told the broker's third level assistant to follow his usual strategy slowly placed the bets over a week so that they would go unnoticed. And after placing his order, Joseph watched the markets to keep a tab on things. And instantly, he sees things go horribly wrong. So I'm, I'm watching that stock. All of a sudden, I see it shoot up like two or three dollars on 100,000 shares. So instead of feeding it slowly, she had done a market order. Boom, throws it all in there. If that trade had been put through properly, Joseph and Gill might never have been caught. But the regulators immediately noticed that something untoward was going on. And that's when they began to investigate. And I went to bed with millions of dollars. Next morning, I had $1,000 in my pocket. That's all I had because everything else was frozen. Joseph knew that the game was up. But he says that Gill, whose professional reputation was on the line, wanted to fight. And the two best friends, who had talked on the phone every day for 20 years, found themselves turning against each other. Neither of them wanted to go to prison, so they began to strategize. They thought about pretending to be lovers and say that Joseph stole information from Gil. But Gil had another idea. He said, here's the plan. I've thought about it, you know, whatever, all weekend. Uh, you kill yourself and I'll take care of your kids. That was his master plan. Joseph said he'd think about it but hired a lawyer instead. And then one night, Gil came to his house. So he came to my house late night wearing black leather gloves, and, and uh, I suspected he was going to do something. I just felt that way. And he came to my house, and he's banging on my door, like, you know, 2, 3 in the morning. 
And I said, you know, put your hands on my window, on the window of the door so I could see you don't have anything. And I said, Gil, I know why you're here. Cause I, I know why you're here. Cause I could tell he'd look different. And I said, he, he's coming to kill me. And so, and I said, and I had a hunting knife with me at the front door. And I said, Gil, turn around. Let me see if you have anything. And he wouldn't turn around. So I think he had a knife. They'd meet again another day in Joseph's living room. Gil was still wearing the black leather gloves, and Joseph stood behind a counter, clutching a hunting knife as they discussed strategy. But they would soon stop talking. They both hired high-profile lawyers, and the former best friends were now working against each other. Joseph blamed Gil for getting him back into insider trading after he'd stopped. Gil called Joseph a big liar who had taken advantage of him his whole life. Eventually, both of them decided to plead guilty. We were supposed to meet at a police station, the RCMP, to get fingerprinted, and he didn't show up. On the night of October 26, 2009, Gil Kornblum jumped off of a bridge and killed himself. His wife would tell reporters that this was the culmination of a lifelong battle with severe depression and that he was a wonderful friend to many and the finest husband and father possible. In total, Joseph and Gil were found to have made over $10 million while insider trading, making it the biggest scheme uncovered in Canadian history. But 15 years after it began, their lives were destroyed. So no, I didn't think of these consequences whatsoever. So if you think when we started, again, the first deal is $180. We could just stop there. No one would have heard of us ever again. In fact, when we split the money the first time, half and half, you know, X millions each, we could have stopped there and no one would have heard of us. We could have had a great life. So at that point, you're not thinking of consequences. But then at the end of the day, you look at it, you say, okay, well, you know, uh, my best friend is dead. You know, lost access to my children, lost all the money, lost career lost, you know, hurt the family, the shame, everything else. So there's so many consequences that never crossed our mind when we started. Joseph was sentenced to 39 months in prison. He's still the only person to ever serve time in a Canadian prison for insider trading. But why is that the case? The cynical answer is I think it's easier for the regulators in Canada to, to get someone to plead and then pay a fine so that they can go towards their budget, as opposed to taking the chance of going to a trial and being found not guilty and hurting their credibility. Before Joseph's conviction, other people had been charged with criminal insider trading, but there wasn't enough evidence to prove it. And insider trading is happening in Canada. Joseph says when he was doing it, he could sometimes tell, just looking at the markets, that someone else was doing the same thing as him. So, for example, when I was being interviewed by the regulars, I said, well, there are deals that I knew about that I didn't buy because it was so obvious someone else was inside trading on it that I didn't want to buy it because I thought I would be swept up in someone else's crime. One case involved a large gold mining company that owned shares in a silver mining company. Joseph had insider information about how a deal was going to go down. This particular deal was just so clear-cut matching the, the, the deal flow that my co-accused was working directly on. And I told the regulators, I said, look, if, you know, this is a deal that I didn't touch because it was so obvious that these big underwriters are clearly, whoever's involved in that uh, bot deal was insider trading, but no one seemed to care. And he claims that while he was committing his crimes, there were people who knew and didn't turn him in. In fact, sometimes they'd profit off of it. So one morning I put a trade in with inside information, I'm buying whatever, you know, X millions of dollars of stock. And then I put the trade in with the broker. 
about three or four hours later, I have a friend in Vancouver. So I'm in Toronto. He calls me. He says, hey, you should buy a company X. And I go, why should I buy company X? He says, well, it's going to be taken over. And this is the stock that I bought that morning. And I said, really? How did you find out about it? And he goes, oh, my broker in Toronto told me about it. And I go, who's, who's your broker in Toronto? It's my broker. So my broker in Toronto is so confident in my inside information. He's passing it on to other people to look good. It went full circle. So it went from Toronto, Vancouver back to me. The source of information... And I find out a broker is, is basically not only copying my trades, but passing it on, like giving it, handing out like candy. He claims that other brokers would buy stocks for themselves before Joseph's orders, which itself is illegal. So I would often see a broker buy ahead of me. So not saying he knew inside information. He knew my big order was coming in and he would get ahead of me for a thin stock, especially. But the brokers and lawyers never blew the whistle on him. I know people knew I was inside trading, especially at the end when I was sloppy, but no one turned me in because I was more valuable as an asset than as, you know, a conviction. Ever since he got out of prison, Joseph says that he's been trying to make amends for the wrongs he's done. He gives occasional lectures to professional groups or schools about the consequences of white-collar crime. But he's found there isn't much of an appetite to hear about this kind of stuff in Canada. I've done public speaking, almost all of them are American. You would think a law firm in Toronto would have me in to speak to their first year students to say, hey, this is the slippery slope I went down over one little, you know, seeing something I shouldn't have, maybe shouldn't have seen, and I went down, this is the, you know, the calamity at the end. Instead, he gets a chilly response. When I was on parole, I got an interview with a, uh, direct, a director of education at a law firm, big downtown corporate law firm. And I met this person and I said, I'll speak to your first year class, but what happens? You say, I don't do it. And he goes, no, no, I, you're going to give them ideas. I said, well, you know, there's a show, you know, billions on TV. Everyone knows about it. I'm not going to give an idea. They're, you know, they're intelligent people. They're, they already know about it. But recently, an educational documentary about Joseph's crimes was released. It's called Collard. And Joseph says that he hopes his story could help people who might go down the wrong path. I want someone in the future to say, hey, I have an option to do something improper, immoral, illegal, whatever. I'm going to let it slide past because I heard this story because sometimes you don't know where it leads. You don't know the consequences. There could be much more severe than you think. Even though Joseph and Gill's insider trading conspiracy is the largest ever uncovered in Canada, by American standards, it's peanuts. In the last decade, New York prosecutors have uncovered massive billion-dollar insider trading schemes at some of the most prominent hedge funds in the world. Police and prosecutors approach the cases like mob investigators, using wiretaps, surveillance, and flipping people at the bottom to go after the boss. But in Canada, that's just never been done. I always say, if I did today, I would do it with a hedge fund. Because why? I have a huge pool of capital, so I can make a lot of money inside trade. I can blend in the inside trades within my regular trades to make it harder to prosecute. And also, if I want to be really careful, I don't have to buy the stock being taken over. I might buy other stocks in the same sector that might go up 5% or 10% on a takeover announcement without ever touching the stock that, that goes up 20% when being taken over. Joseph and Gil were just two guys committing these crimes on their own. Their methods weren't even that sophisticated. In the hands of a hedge fund or an investment bank, even a tiny piece of insider information can be worth tens of millions. So does that kind of thing happen in Canada? Right now, we simply don't know.
And that's your episode of Commons for the week. If you're looking for a convicted white-collar criminal to speak to your professional group or body, you can reach Joseph Gromovsik at collared.speaker at gmail.com. This episode relied on reporting done by Mark Coakley, the author of Tip and Trade, a book about this very scandal. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Thank you.